Episode 55, 4th of August, 2012. Mars Curiosity. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org. Since the mid-1970s, six spacecraft have successfully landed on the surface of Mars. In probably the most audacious, breathtaking and perilous space missions, in less than two days, another Mars Curiosity rover will arrive on Mars. Using a technique never used before, NASA has described the entry-descent-landing as the seven minutes of terror. Launched in November 2011, the arrival of Mars Curiosity will, for the first time, make a high-precision landing which is so crucial to its primary scientific goal of finding evidence of earlier Martian environment that may have been suitable for life. Also known as the Mars Science Laboratory, it will be supported by a pair of NASA satellites, Odyssey and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, MRO, already in Martian orbit. Mars has never been under so much human scrutiny. In addition to the still-functioning Opportunity, a rover on the surface of Mars, launched in 2004, and the two NASA satellites, there's also the European Space Agency's Mars Express, also in Martian orbit. Dr. Anita Sengupta is a member of the Entry, Descent, Landing and Advanced Technologies Group at JPL. In this interview, recorded on August the 2nd, via telephone from her office in JPL, she captures the sheer acceleration of the dramatic entry, descent and landing phase. But first, she describes her role in the Mars Curiosity rover mission. I had two different roles, actually, during the course of the project. So my first responsibility was uh, the cognizant engineer for the supersonic parachute system. And so I worked on that for several years. And as we got that further along in development, I did, then switched over into um, the entry, descent, and landing systems engineering area, where I took over responsibility for the systems engineering of the supersonic parachute system, and specifically um, the qualification of the parachute in the supersonic regime. So that means um, basically conducting a variety of test programs and computational simulations to see what the parachute flight is going to be like during the supersonic regime. Um, because in case your listeners don't know, when we do testing here on Earth, it's very difficult to simulate the Mars environment. And most of our testing we actually do in the subsonic regime, which is below the speed of sound. Um, and we do it for structural qualification purposes. So oftentimes what we have to do for um, Mars-type parachutes is we conduct um, subscale supersonic wind tunnel tests. And so we did a lot of that uh, to ensure that the parachute would survive its flight through this rather uh, difficult regime um, through the Martian atmosphere. And then another large area of responsibility was uh, making an assessment of what the terminal descent system was going to be like and what the plume impingement environment would be, which is basically the interaction of the retro rockets with the surface of Mars. And we also conducted a series of test programs there as well. Well, the idea of a supersonic parachute is just intriguing by itself. So given that it's very difficult to replicate Martian environment here on Earth, how on earth do you test uh, things like that? So you said you do it on miniature scale, so it's like a, a supersonic wind tunnel, but with a miniature parachute? Yes, yeah, so, well, we do, we do two different types of test programs. So we do do full 
scale testing of the, the full-on uh, MSL parachute, and we do that either um, dropping it from a helicopter at sort of around 3,000 feet, mm -hmm. and we allow it to drop for enough time so that it accelerates, so it actually experiences the correct load, uh, the correct total amount of drag force on it. So that's one way to, to qualify it structurally. But in order to simulate the exact conditions that we see on Mars, which is a combination of speed, a combination of atmospheric density, you can't do that on Earth. The only way to do that on Earth is basically to take that parachute up to about, I think it's like 150,000 feet, and fire it off of a rocket to get it up to Mach 2. <laughs> so we can't do that, unfortunately, because it's incredibly expensive. So instead, what we do is we build these little subscale articles. So in our case, we built about a 4% scale article, and we test it in a supersonic wind tunnel. And so the supersonic wind tunnel has dimensions of about, um, gosh, I'm going to have to convert from feet to meters here, but the, <laughs> the actual cross-section is 10 feet by 10 feet, so I guess that's around 3 meters by 3 meters. Mm -hmm. And then we build these tiny articles to make them as similar as possible to full-scale articles. And what we're looking for here is actually understanding the aerodynamic environment that the parachute finds itself in. Now, I must ask, um, your name sounds Indian, but you, you sound American. So where are you from? <laughs> well, I am a, a mixture of things. I was actually originally born in Scotland, um, so I am half, um, I guess, Scotch-Irish-English on my mother's <laughs> side, and then I'm half Bengali on my father's side. So I'm a combination of different things. But, um, but uh, I actually do still retain my uh, UK passport. But I'm now a naturalized U.S. citizen. So I moved to the United States when I was about three years old. So I, I did most of my schooling there and I did all of my university education in the United States. Uh, and very briefly, how was, uh, what's the journey you took from Glasgow to become a, a NASA scientist? Oh, well, um, I would say that ever since I was very small, I loved science fiction, I loved space exploration, I loved space technology. So probably ever since the age of six, I always knew that I wanted to be involved in the space program. It kind of took me, you know, over the course of, you know, growing up from six to my teenage years to actually hone in on engineering, because at one point I was interested in astronomy, one point I was interested in astrophysics, um, another point um, doing more sort of astrobiology, but then I ended up deciding on going with aerospace engineering for a variety of reasons. One, I love technology, um, I love to do um, experiments, I love to test things, I love to build new things, and also I decided that was probably the best way to get a, a good, stable job, and I really wanted to work for NASA, so I kind of knew what I wanted to do for a very long time, it was just trying to pick the right path and where exactly in the space program I wanted to, to fall into place. Now, before we move on to um, the uh, Curiosity rover, is this the first Martian or indeed an interplanetary mission you worked on or have you worked on others? I did briefly work on the Phoenix program. So for the Phoenix mission, we actually looked at understanding what the plume impingement environment was right at the end of the terminal descent on Phoenix. And so Phoenix, we had a series of engines which were actually operating in a pulsed mode. Um, they don't have the ability to have throttle control, so they pulse them to provide throttle control. And so we wanted to understand what the aerodynamic interaction was between those retro rockets and the surface of Mars with the Phoenix spacecraft. And so we also did that um, for the MSL spacecraft as well. So actually, so Phoenix probably would have been my first Mars mission, but I worked on um, several different missions before that which weren't related to Mars. So moving on to Mars Curiosity, what's the scientific objective for this mission? So um, the scientific objective is certainly to follow on from the prior missions that we've had to Mars. So first we were doing the search for water, and we have identified water on Mars, and now we're engaging in the search for life. And so the real purpose behind Curiosity's mission is to determine whether or not Mars was ever um, a habitable planet, because scientists actually believe um, early in time that Mars was actually more similar to Earth in the sense that it was wet and it was warmer. And so it could be that at that point in time it could have supported life on the surface. So what we're looking for is evidence of habitability, 
in the past and evidence potentially of past life. And the way we do that is by looking for organic molecules. So specifically, it's looking to detect organic molecules, which are the building blocks of life. So the plethora of uh, Mars missions, well, quite a few uh, successful ones, including, as you said, Phoenix, have found lots of evidence of uh, environment which would indicate life is perhaps uh, uh, suitable for that environment. So what are the other other criteria? For example, surface temperature of Mars is pretty cold and the pressure is very low. It's uh, very likely, do you think, that life on the surface of Mars could exist? Well, I certainly am an engineer and I'm not an astrobiologist, <laughs> so for me it's a little bit of a speculation, but yeah. from speaking with other scientists over time, uh, my understanding is that since in the past uh, Mars was actually warmer and far more wet, it could have supported life. It was that type of environment that could have supported life. Now, of course, a lot of that water has been frozen in the polar caps. There's likely to be water in the subsurface also in a frozen state, so perhaps that life may not exist anymore, but in terms of analogs, we have very, very difficult environments um, on Earth where, where life can exist sort of you know in, in geothermal vents in incredibly cold places and in incredibly hot places not everything actually requires you know oxygen survive you have anaerobic bacteria so there certainly is a precedent even here on earth for life to exist in very difficult extremes um, but you know the reason why we do this exploration is that we, we, we can theorize and we can postulate but we don't know until we actually go there and make the measurements so that's why this mission is so important and that being able to detect organics really is sort of the next evidence of the building block of life well, you know, uh, going back to the late or mid-70s, I don't think you were probably around at that time, but I remember the sheer excitement of the Vikings landing on Mars. And I think in the end, the formal conclusion to those experiments was that, uh, in terms of finding evidence for life, was inconclusive. And I get the feeling that the Mars Science Laboratory has all the capacity now that if there is life on the surface of Mars, it will find it. I think that they'll find evidence of uh, past life, um, but I think the type of instrument that requires detecting current life is different than the one that we're carrying. So mm -hmm. that's kind of for a future mission. But the other thing to note about why Curiosity is so unique, and this is kind of where the entry descent landing system comes into play, is that in prior missions, we have done science where we could land, basically. Mm -hmm. This is essentially the first mission we're actually landing where we want to do the science. So you know, when, even when you look across the face of planet Earth, you can see some places which are you know, sort of teeming with life and some places which are more destitute of life, for lack of a better term. So now we're actually going to go to a place where scientists believe that we're going to be able to find this really interesting, you know, several uh, hundreds of millions of year old sort of geological history of the planet with, with layers of sort of sediment on the surface where you're more likely to be able to actually find um, samples that we can analyze with the instruments to detect organics. So that's the difference between Curiosity and all the prior missions. Hmm. Phoenix landed uh, quite uh, north into the Martian northern hemisphere. That was not a precision landing, uh, if I can call it that. Was it not a what? A precision line landing. It's a place where there probably would have been a lot of water uh, because it was so far north. No, that wasn't a precision landing. So this our landing system here has an incredible degree of accuracy, and, and there's several reasons for that. One is we actually, so of course the, the vehicle um, controls itself. It's autonomous. It has the ability to detect where it is and where it needs to go. So we actually are able to fly the vehicle to enable us to have a landing precision of about 20 kilometers by 7 kilometers on the surface of the planet. So this is basically an order of magnitude better than anything we've ever done before. So that also allows us to land in a spot which is of, of large interest to us, and we're only able to access that spot because of the precision of our landing system. 
the previous rovers, the, which were still out there, Spirit and Opportunity, landing was with airbags. Why not use more uh, of that technology? Is it just a precision? Well, it's precision and it's also the capability of the airbag. So our rover is much larger than um, Spirit and Opportunity. Our rover is basically around 2,000 pounds. It's actually the size of a small car. Mm. And so the airbag technology doesn't exist that can handle that payload mass on the surface. So that's one of the reasons why you can't use it. The other reason is um, when the system lands on airbags, it actually bounces around for a lot. So it takes away that whole precision aspect of being able to land in, in a um, you know, more precise location. Now, the other reason is, is because when you land that way, you have to land on a pallet. And that pallet is essentially unused mass. And so what we want to do from an engineering perspective is put as much mass as we can in the payload element. So not only do we get better position, not only are we able to access more interesting science sites, but we're actually able to put a larger rover and a rover with more mass associated with the entry system specifically to the payload. So it's a better engineering solution and gives you better science return. Now, this um, entry, descent, landing system is one of the most exciting, fantastical things that I think we all have the opportunity to experience next Monday. Can you just take us through what's going to happen as uh, Mars uh, Science Laboratory enters the upper Martian atmosphere? Sure, and of course, if anyone hasn't seen it, we do have a great video called Seven Minutes of Terror. If you Google it, it'll automatically take you to the links, and then you can kind of see it with your own eyes. Um, but so we have different aspects of the descent, and so we start the um, atmospheric interface about 125 kilometers above the surface. That's when we start to sort of feel a little bit of the atmosphere, and we're coming in at hypersonic speeds at that time. We're coming in about 13,000 miles an hour, and since we're actually entering into something with an atmosphere, we start to experience aerodynamic drag, and it's that aerodynamic drag that actually allows us to slow down. Um, it's also that aerodynamic drag which causes us to heat up. So the first part of our descent is the hypersonic descent where we experience very high deceleration forces on the order of around 13 Gs, and we also experience very high heating rates. And so we use something called a heat shield to accommodate that really high heating rate, and it basically absorbs the energy and ablates away so that we protect the rover, which is inside of this heat shield. During this time, we're also actually doing hypersonic guidance. So our vehicle has a slight angle of attack, and so what that means is it's like a little airplane. Of course, it doesn't look like an airplane. It looks like an ob-shaped bowl but it does have an angle of attack, and that means that it can use a set of thrusters that it has on the back called reaction control system thrusters to sort of bank and to, do, to roll and to pitch and to yaw to fly it towards the target that it's heading to during the hypersonic phase. Um, whilst we've, we're slowing down hypersonically to supersonic speeds, we go from about 13,000 miles an hour down to about 1,000 miles an hour, and at that point, we can deploy our supersonic parachutes. That's the parachute that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Now, the interesting thing about our supersonic parachute is it's the biggest parachute that we've ever built before for Mars. It's about um, 21 and a half meters in diameter, which is about by 65 feet, so it's rather enormous. And the reason why it has to be so big is because the air is so thin. And, and we use that to slow us down from uh, about 1,000 miles an hour down to around 500 miles an hour where we actually uh, drop our heat shield. And we drop our heat shield is because we want to expose our radar, our terminal descent system. It's basically a sensor which allows us to determine what our velocity is and allows us to determine what our altitude is. And then we continue down on the parachute descent to around 250 miles an hour. And at that point, we then cut away from the parachute because the parachute can't give us any more drag. We're kind of at that speed. And at that point, we cut away from the parachute. We then start our final descent on eight retropropulsive rockets. These are monopropellant hydrazine thrusters. And that allows us to slow down from about um, 200 miles an hour all the way down to about two miles an hour. And when we get about 
20 meters above the surface, so it's about 65 feet or so above the surface, is when we start our sky crane maneuver. And the sky crane maneuver, it happens over a really short period of time, but it basically lowers the rover from the vehicle which contains these retro rockets, and it, it lowers the rover on a tether. That tether, when it's fully extended, is about 7 meters in length, so it's about 21 feet in length. And what it allows it to do is allows the rover to touch wheels down on the ground. So the, the rover wheels are actually its landing gear. And then when it makes contact with the surface, it senses that, it cuts that tether, and that little vehicle with the retro rockets then flies away off to the side and crashes at a safe distance. And we've landed the rover in a very, very soft landing on the surface of Mars without the need for a pallet and with basically the maximum amount of mass that we want for the scientific payload. So that's kind of a, a really fast version of what we do. <laughs> it took us several years to develop that system. But in a nutshell, those are kind of the, the primary technologies that we use to sort of mitigate the atmospheric heating and slow ourselves down. And all of that happens automatically, and I can understand why it's called Seven Minutes of Terror. <laughs> it all happens automatically. It's all autonomous. We've got a very, you know, uh, we've got flight software on board and a flight computer. We have several different measurement technologies so that we can get our knowledge of our position, of our altitude, and our velocity. And all of that gets fed into the flight software, just like any other aircraft control system, and gets us down safely to the ground. It's going to be fascinating. I take it you'll be watching this live? Yes, I'll be in the control room. Um, I'm not going to be operating a console, but I will be watching in the control room with the rest of my colleagues, uh, hoping that everything goes as planned. You, like many other scientists, have spent quite a lot of uh, your professional time working on this. With just uh, over three days to go, how do you feel about the mission right now? I feel really good. I mean, we, we spent... Of course, whenever you look at it externally, it seems a little bit crazy and it seems very difficult. And it is very difficult and it is really challenging, but we've spent many years and we analyze things to an extreme degree, you know, great understanding of um, sort of the, the performance of each one of these systems. And we have good end-to-end -end simulations um, based off of actual test data that we collected from each one of these elements. So we're feeling good, but it's only natural to feel nervous because there's only so much you can do from an engineering perspective if you happen to have a really bad day on Mars where the atmospheric properties were, you know, way off where they would ever expect them to be, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. So there's some things which are kind of out of your control, but, you know, from a, 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 a engineering perspective, it is a very um, detailed solution that we've analyzed and taken everything into account, and we're confident, but of course, still nervous. Before we finish, this is a, a laboratory going from Earth to Mars. I guess the next mission would be a mission to bring some bit of Mars back to Earth so we can examine it in a laboratory here, like a, a sample return mission. Um, is that something that uh, you and your colleagues would be working on next? Well, so Mars Sample Return mission has been in the works for many years from a, from a mission planning perspective. So it is kind of the... I guess the holy grail of, of Mars missions where we actually do get to get that sample back from the surface of Mars in full integrity and, and test it in Earth-based laboratories because obviously Earth-based laboratories have much more capability than you could ever send on a spacecraft because you're not mass limited essentially. So that's definitely the next step. That's the next evolution for the robotic um, Mars program. And we are definitely in planning stages in terms of the architecture that we've used. We actually start, started to look from a technology development perspective at uh, a potential Mars ascent vehicle. So this is sort of like the launch vehicle that would have to get the sample from the surface of Mars into orbit around Earth. So um, that is the next uh, mission um, sort of on the horizon. But in the interim, we're actually going to have several more missions. So, you know, whether we do an orbiting mission or another rover mission between, um, you know, today and when we actually get around to doing Mars sample return, that's kind of still in the planning stages. Well, it's something that um, I think I and 
millions around the world will be uh, looking forward to. Um, thank you for very much indeed for sharing your time. I know it's going to be pretty busy for you the next few days as well. And perhaps uh, we can have another chat at another time. It's more engineering focused as well. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> That'd be, that would be very nice. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that everyone is around the planet is so interested in what we're doing. So that actually makes us really happy because we obviously do what we do um, for the public, right? We do what we do to, you know, further understanding of, of, of Earth, of Mars, just sort of our place in the universe. So it's nice to see that the, the public is interested in, in what we're doing. Well, there is a huge community. I, I remember, again, going back to the mid-70s when I was a teenager, uh, I remember speaking to somebody when the first images from the surface of Mars were published, and somebody said, oh, you can just write to NASA, and they'll send you some pictures. I didn't believe it, but I did write, and I got an envelope back from JPL with some pictures. I was over the moon, and ever since then, I've had a very fond connection with uh, the place where you work and uh, all the missions you've been working on. So, Dr. Anita Sengupta from JPL, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.